Let's turn, please, in the Word of God to a very well-known portion of Old Testament Scripture. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel and the 17th chapter. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse number 11, and then read from verse 40 just after that. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, commencing at the first verse, and we'll read down to verse 11. So if you have a copy of God's Word there, let's turn to the Scriptures. 1 Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel 17, verse number 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah and Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood in a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood in a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you out a man from you, and let him come down to me, if he be able to fight with me and to kill me. Then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And then we'll move down to verse number 40. And in the intervening verses, David, the youngest son of Jesse, has come down to the valley of Elah. He's expressed his faith in the Lord and his desire to stand against Goliath. He's met with much opposition and discouragement. But nevertheless, armed with his sling and five smooth stones, he goes out in the name of the Lord. And so we'll take our reading from verse 40 down to verse number 51. And he, that is David, took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag which he had, even in a scrip, and the sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy, and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog, that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David 
by his gods. And the Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give thy carcasses to the host of the Philistines this day, unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass, when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in the forehead and the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And we know God will bless the reading of this very well-known portion of Old Testament history. Will you turn again in your Bible, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Last Lord's Day, we thought about giant despair. And we've been looking, and we're going to be looking at some of the great giants in Scripture, facing our giants. And here we come to one of the most well-known in all of Holy Scripture, the giant Goliath, who David slew in the valley of Elah. And so our subject for this morning is very simply, victory in the valley. Victory in the valley. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Keep your Bible open, please. And let's just pray that God will speak and that the Lord will be glorified. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful once again for the Word of God. We thank Thee, Lord, for this precious book that is a lamp to our feet and a light onto our pathway. We live in a world, Lord, where we need guidance and direction. And in the midst, Lord, of so many different voices and thoughts and opinion, some legitimate, some not so much. We thank Thee, Lord, that we have a, a more sure word of prophecy, a book that God has given that is a book that is full of truth. We pray, Lord, that You will write Thy word upon our hearts. Encourage some today who are in the valley facing giants, Lord. We ask in the Savior's name that Thou will go before us. Help us to trust our Savior the son of David for victory. And even now we pray that you'll put a hedge around about us. Make this to be a blessed time as the meeting soon draws to a close. Speak to our hearts through thy word. Grant the help and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We pray for thy glory, for the 
goodify people, and in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. David and Goliath, probably the most well-known Old Testament story. Facing our Goliaths, David versus Goliath, is an idiom that has found its way into modern culture. You might get it in the sporting field, maybe a small or insignificant team finds themselves against a team that has won victory after victory and trophy after trophy. And sometimes it's described as being a David versus Goliath situation. Might be the same in the political realm. You get an, an unknown standing for election and facing some of the seasoned veterans, if you like, and they say it's well, that's a, a David versus Goliath situation. It might be in the legal field as well. You get somebody taking out a lawsuit or a court case against another, and it seems that somebody's standing against against legal giants and great laws and great solicitors and lawyers and standing in the court and they'll say, well, this is a, a David versus Goliath situation. And sometimes we can apply it to our lives personally whenever there's a trial and a burden and we find ourselves in the valley and some great trial looms over us and we see, feel so small and so insignificant. We might say, I'm in a David versus Goliath situation. This story of David and Goliath is a story that's rich in application. And we certainly all have our giants to face in life. Sometimes we face Goliaths and we feel as if we're going to get crushed underneath the weight and the heat of the battle. But really the story of David and Goliath is not an allegory about how to beat your problems, or how to overcome your personal giants, or how to overcome adversity against all odds. Really, the the story of David and Goliath is a wonderful gospel illustration. And really, the story of David and Goliath represents the battle of the ages, the battle of good versus evil, the battle of Christ versus Satan, the battle of darkness versus light. I believe in a very real sense that the nation of Israel here represents us, the people of God, the church if you like. Israel was the church in the Old Testament and here we are as part of the body, part of the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God in Old Testament times were being defied and being defeated by the Philistines and by Goliath and we find ourselves often like the nation of Israel, the people of God, facing this great Goliath. Goliath represents all that is opposed to the kingdom of God and all that is opposed to the the people of God and the truth of God, whether it's Satan or sin or secularism or even the great Antichrist who will arise in the last days and defy not only the nation of Israel but the church of Jesus Christ as well. And then the hero of the story, David, represents our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David does not represent, I believe, the the believer that's struggling. David represents Christ, the great conqueror, the son of David, the shepherd, the king, the great emancipator, the great deliverer. 
And it's as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of David, and we step out in obedience behind Him, that He wins and fights the battles for us. The victory was won at Calvary. And that's why the Bible says we can be more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Praise God we are not left to fight life's battles and stand against principalities and powers in the flesh or in our own strength, but we stand in the victory that has been purchased and won for us already by our great conqueror and deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think about this subject this morning, victory in the valley, three simple things that I want you to look at as we just give an overview of 1 Samuel 17. First of all, the greatness of Goliath. The greatness of Goliath. Now, Goliath in, in Scripture was not a mythical character. Sometimes we have the idea, whenever you think of a giant, you think of somebody maybe standing a hundred feet tall with uh, big fingers and big feet and big thumbs and toes and like Finn McCool, you know, when he, he was trying to f visit his girlfriend over there in Scotland and he threw the stones into the Irish Sea and he made the giant's causeway. And we have this idea, whenever we think about giants, about somebody maybe at the top of a beanstalk or something ridiculous like that. But Goliath was not a fictional character. Goliath was not like a, a fairy story creature. Goliath was real. Goliath was a historical figure in Scripture and in history. And the giants, the Goliaths that we face are oftentimes real. They're not figments of our imagination. They're real. We're in the very midst of a real battle. Sometimes we find ourselves in the depths of a real valley facing real giants, real Goliaths. You think about the greatness of Goliath, you notice first of all, in verse number 4, his size. The greatness of his size, there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now there is some dispute as to how long a cubit was. Most people would take the view that a cubit was 18 inches the distance between a person's fingertip and elbow. Some make it a little bit more than that. They would say it's 21 inches and a span was half a cubit. So if we take the standard thought that a cubit is 18 inches, that would mean that Goliath stood at 9 feet and 9 inches. 9 feet and 9 inches. That's quite a size, quite a stature. Sometimes I get asked what height I am. I think I'm about six foot three. Sometimes to confuse people, I say I'm five foot 15, and they kind of look at you. And there's people here this morning, and you're taller than that again. There's a lot of tall men and women in Lisburn. But nobody could hold a candle to Goliath. I took a tape measure earlier this morning, and if you were to measure from the floor of this pulpit up to that word, though, there in the text behind me, that's about nine feet, nine inches. Three and a half feet taller than myself. And I wouldn't like to stand against a Goliath, a giant that height, and try to fight him in the flesh. The tallest man that I ever seen was a wrestler. Way back about 32 years ago, my dad took me and my brother and a couple of friends to the King's Hall in Belfast. 
And this group of Americans had come across and they were uh, putting on their, uh, I don't know what you would call it, our wrestling event. It's a pantomime really, but they, they were, there they were in the city hall or the king's hall in Belfast. And Andre the Giant was a famous wrestler at that time. He came making his way up through the crowd. And you could just see his huge big cranium, his huge big head, head and shoulders above everybody else from the far end of the king's hall. And he climbed up into the ring and just put his leg over the top rope, seven foot, four inches tall. Huge big man. The tallest man in modern history was Robert Wadlow from America. He had a, an accelerated human growth hormone. And that meant that he reached a height of eight feet and 11 inches. Huge big man, Robert Wadlow, by the time he was in his early 20s. Eight feet, 11. The tallest man presently is a Turkish farmer. Not a turkey farmer, but a, a farmer who comes from Turkey. And he's about eight feet three. But none of them have the size and the stature of Goliath. At least nine feet, nine inches. And I'm sure he wasn't a beanpole either. I'm sure he had a figure, a breadth to match his height. This was a huge, huge big man, quite intimidating. I'm sure you'll all agree. And some of us today are facing Goliaths, and there are giants against the Christian, against the church of Christ, that are so much bigger than you and I, his size. Then there's also reference, I believe, to his strength. Verse number 4 says he was a champion of the Philistines. He was the strongest and the most skillful that the Philistines had to offer. And there had never been an individual, nobody had taken on this brute and lived to tell the tale. He could literally tear an ordinary individual apart with his bare hands, especially somebody like David, it says in verse number 44 that Goliath said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and feed thee to the, the beasts of the field. I'll chop you up, I'll pull you apart, limb from limb, and I'll give what's left of your body to the beasts of the fields and to the fowls of the air. Sin and Satan are strong enemies. Secularism is a very strong enemy as well. And in the midst of it all, we can feel so small and so weak and so intimidated. Because not only are these giants bigger than us, these giants are certainly a lot stronger than us as well. And the Bible reminds us that the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. The Spirit is willing, the Lord said in the Garden of Gethsemane to His disciples. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And Goliath recognized the weakness of the flesh. Even if a man like David, a man after God's own heart, I'll give your flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. We cannot live the Christian life in the flesh. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Trust in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. Ye dare not trust your own. Notice not just the greatness of Goliath's size, and the greatness of his strength. But look at the stuff, the armor, the weapons that Goliath had with him. Verse number 5, it speaks about his helmet of brass, his coat of mail, 
It says the weight of that coat was about 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds in weight. It speaks then about greaves of brass upon his legs, a target of brass between his shoulders. This man is wearing a coat of mail. He's got brass armor on top of the coat of mail. He's got a, a brass helmet upon his head. It says in verse 7, he's got a spear, and the staff of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and the very head of that spear, the point of the spear, weighed somewhere in the region of 15 pounds. That could cut a man in two if thrown by a man like Goliath. He was impregnable. And sometimes we look at the stuff that this world has, the equipment, the weaponry, the armor that they the world has as it opposes the Christian. And we think, how can we even cause a little dent in that armor? And we feel, again, so intimidated. Maybe you feel in your Christian life that you're hardly making progress at all. The Goliaths of this world are well equipped. Paul said to the church at Corinth concerning the devil, he says, we are not ignorant of his devices. In the book of Ephesians, he talked about the wiles of the devil and the fiery darts of the wicked. And the devil today has got a vast and a mighty arsenal at his disposal. Lotus as well, in verse number 2, the great stage that Goliath came out to. Verse 2 speaks about the children of Israel being pitched by the valley of Elah, set the battle in array against the Philistines. And then all of a sudden, this giant appears on the horizon from amongst the mountains on the other side. The Israelite children, the people of God, they can hardly realize or believe the, the size of this man as he suddenly steps onto the arena of world history and enters out into this great, great valley. Many ways, it's like a German Sherman tank coming across the horizon and people standing with pitchforks and lanterns and cudgels and this great tank, this iron vehicle coming with its guns and they feel so small and so unable to do anything about it and they're surrounded by mountains. The Philistines are the aggressors. Goliath is calling people down into the valley. And maybe you find yourself this morning in the valley and you're hiding and it's like the devil is taunting you and calling you, come down into the valley and face me. And you feel so, so small and so weak. But the lovely thing about David is David knew what it was like to be in the valley. He wrote in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And you've been in the valley before. Maybe you'll be in the valley again. Maybe you're in the valley right now. And this is often the great stage where the, the Goliaths attack us, not whenever we're on the mountain, not even whenever we're on the plain, but whenever we're down low when we find ourselves in the valley, maybe the valley of discouragement, maybe the valley of bereavement, maybe it's the valley of affliction. And the devil brings us down and the devil brings us low. But the Lord Jesus Christ as well was often found in the valley, that Kidron Valley, between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. In that valley, there was a garden, an olive grove called Gethsemane. And that's where the Lord fought his battles in the secret place. And that's where the Lord won. 
Notice as well, not just his size, his strength, his stuff, his stage, but notice in verses 8 through 10, his spite. This man was very spiteful. He stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said all manner of things to them. He came out to defy the armies of Israel. He threatened to kill them, destroy them, bring them into bondage, bring them into affliction. He's proud, arrogant, and aggressive. I'm sure this man had a very big mouth as well, not just figuratively, but also physically. Somebody sent me a clip once on WhatsApp, and it was this big guy in America, and he was able to put an entire Coke can inside his mouth. He had a huge big mouth. And I tell you, the devil has got a big mouth. The Bible says he's a liar. The Scripture says he's the father of liars. The Bible says he's a slanderer. The Word of God says he is the accuser of the brethren. The Bible calls him the great tempter. And as he comes and slanders the church of Christ and the Son of God and maybe accuses you of sins that you have committed, of your weakness, of your inability, of your failure, of your lack of success, of your lack of strength, your lack of prayer, your lack of faith. He accuses you, and his accusations are absolutely relentless. It says in verse number 16 that the Philistine drew near morning and evening. Every morning, as the Israelite people were getting up, there's Goliath. And then as they're trying to get a good night's sleep, he comes out again before bedtime. And says the same things again. And that went on for 40 days. 40 in Scripture is often referred to as the number of trial, the number of testing. And every morning and every evening, there's this great Goliath with his accusations. And maybe that's your experience. You find yourself waking up in the morning and you're in the valley. And the first words, the first thoughts that come into your mind are often negative accusations, lies, slander, affliction, and you take it to heart. And then before you go to bed at night, it's there again, and you find it so difficult to bring yourself out of that valley because Goliath is there damn daily. The greatness of Goliath. Consider, secondly, the impotence or the inability of Israel. How small. How insignificant and weak the children of Israel felt. We cannot possibly win. There's absolutely no point even trying to fight this Goliath. David said in verse number 29, Is there not a cause? And David seems to have picked up on what his brothers are saying and what Saul is saying and what he's hearing from among the soldiers. There's no cause. There's no point. David recognizes there is a cause. But the majority of God's people have given up and they feel that there's no cause at all. They have caved into fear. Their fear is spoken of. In verse number 11, it says, When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24 says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and were sore afraid. Even Saul was afraid. And Saul, the Bible says, was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was something of a giant himself, but even Saul was afraid. And whenever the king is afraid, the nation falls in behind, and they're afraid as well. They could see Goliath, but they could not see their God. And sometimes we see our Goliaths, 
we see the greatness of Goliath, but we don't see the greatness of our God. The Bible says we're to walk by faith and not by sight. And dear friends, let's be honest, isn't it true that sometimes we see the giants on the horizon, the things that are opposed to the Christian, opposed to the child of God, and we feel so small and they cause us to tremble and we can be given to fear. Not only do we see their fear, but we also see their flight. Verse number 24, it says, They fled from him, and they were sore afraid. And are not many Christian people doing the same in this day and generation? The Bible says in Psalm 78, and verse number 9, The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders which he had showed unto them. And today many are like the children of Israel in 1 Samuel 17 or like the children of Ephraim in Psalm 78. They're turning back in the day of battle. They're forgetting the covenants and the promises that they have made before God. They're laying down their armor. They're laying down their weapons. They're no longer in the place of prayer. They're no longer studying the Bible. They're no longer witnessing for Jesus Christ. They have gone back on their commitments. They have gone back on their consecration. They have turned back on their convictions. The law of God, it says here, they refuse to walk in His law. And they say the giants are too great. Let's just go back and sleep in our tents. Let's take it easy. Let's lay aside our convictions. Let's turn aside from the law of God. Let's not fight the battles any longer. There's no reason, there's no cause. We cannot possibly win. Well, dear friends, it's not about whether we win or lose. It's faithfulness to Jesus Christ that's the important thing. I wonder if you turned back in the day of battle. Have you laid down your weapons? Have you turned your back on your consecration, your convictions? things that are important, and yet for you the only important thing is someday getting to heaven, not standing up for Christ in this world and in this crooked generation. Their fear, their flight, their feebleness, they were so weak and so impotent. The hymn writer said, like a mighty army moves the church of God. But dear friend, in the West, in Northern Ireland, and Britain, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't appear to be much like a mighty army. Certainly not marching on. Oftentimes, if we're honest, we cower in fear at the things that we see in the valley. Then as well, there's also their frustration. Do you ever get frustrated with the giants of life? The things that make you afraid. And rather than facing them and trusting Christ and getting in behind the Savior and trusting the Lord for victory, you get bitter and angry and frustrated at other Christians. This is what has happened in the Valley of Elah. Eliab was Jesse's oldest son, the strongest, the most experienced, the most victorious up until this point. And then whenever David comes down into the Valley of Elah, we read in verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled not against Goliath, but his anger was kindled against David. And it says that he said to him, Why comest thou down hither? 
And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. David, you're proud. David, you're negligent. David, you're foolish. David, you're just sticking in your nose where it's not wanted. I know the naughtiness of your heart, the sin that's in your life. Eliab never thought about his own sin. He never thought about his own unbelief. He never thought about the fact that he wasn't fighting battles anymore. But now he's pointing the finger at those that are and accusing them of sin and unbelief and pride and not being or doing the things that they ought to be doing. And many can be like Eliab. They get so frustrated. And rather than turning their frustrations into prayers, they point the finger at other Christians. And they say, he's not doing it right. She's not living right. I know the pride in his heart. They're not where they should be. They're not where they used to be. I know the naughtiness of their heart. And they're turning their frustration into a critical spirit. And oftentimes it's evidence of defeatism in a person's life whenever they point out the faults of everybody else. You know, in my limited experience, whenever I meet people that are backslidden and have lost out with God, they justify it by blaming the Christians and pointing the finger at others. And it's so easy to find faults in our own lives and in the lives of others, but better sort out our own hearts and take up the armor of God and take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and the helmet of salvation and get in behind Christ. And walk with God rather than point the finger at others out of our own frustration. We see as we look at the impotence of Israel, their fear, their flight, their feebleness, their frustrations, and also ultimately their failure. Israel was living in failure and defeat. Saul himself was living in failure and defeat. Israel and the armies thereof, Eliab, were not able to face Goliath, found themselves not trusting in the Lord. I wonder today, would we be so honest to admit that maybe we have failed and the church is failing. And we have to expect failure whenever we trust in ourselves and we look to ourselves and we look to other Christians. Of course we're going to fail. We often sing that hymn. It speaks about the backslider. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. But I believe that's got great application to the church. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. Out of my darkness and into the cross, Jesus I come, Jesus I come to thee. The greatness of Goliath, the impotence of Israel, one last thought, the deliverance by David. David is a type of Jesus Christ. David was the beloved son David was God's anointed. David was the great shepherd. David was to be the king of Israel. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Often he was addressed, Jesus, thy son of David. Jesus Christ was typified by David. And while there are lessons for us to learn and principles for us to employ, the Bible says we're to follow the example of Christ, we're to let the mind of Christ be in us. But the reality is, dear friends, this morning, this portion of Scripture is all about Christ, not about us. David typifies Christ, not the Christian. 
It was Christ that defeated sin upon the cross. It was Christ that defeated Satan upon the cross. It was Christ that defeated sin and death upon the cross. None of us can do that. But we can trust in the one who can. It was David who won the victory. We are not called to fight the giant, but rather we are called to trust in Christ and to stand behind him and stand in the victory of the cross. The victory has already been won. The Son of God cried out on that cross, it is finished. And that's why the Bible says, thanks be unto God, which give us off the victory in Christ Jesus, who always causes us to triumph. We can be more than conquerors through him that loved us. Whatever giants you're facing today, don't cave in. Don't turn your back on your convictions, on your consecration, on your communion, on the covenants that God has made with you, but rather get in behind the Lord Jesus Christ. David was the most unlikely of deliverers. He was young. He was inexperienced. He was too young to join the army. In fact, the Word of God says he was of a fair countenance. He maybe hadn't even started shaving yet. And yet that was God's deliverer. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was an unlikely deliverer. A carpenter from Nazareth. The son of a peasant woman who had nowhere to lay his head. who only had one piece of property in the entire world and that was his robe, who never traveled more than 150 miles from where he was born, who never set foot in a large city, who never commanded an army, who never wrote a single book. And yet Jesus Christ is the great deliverer. As you think about David here, just a few things to notice in closing. Consider the discouragements that he faced. In verse 28, his eldest brother Eliab, rather than taking David under his wing, slanders him, accuses him, belittles him, ridicules him. And then Saul is discouraged and tries to put his armor on David and it swamps him. And isn't that like our Lord Jesus Christ? David came to his brethren, but they esteemed him not. And the Bible says in John 1 verse 11, Christ came unto his own, but his own received him or esteemed him not. In fact, it says in John 7, 5, neither did his own brethren believe in him. His own family didn't believe that he was the deliverer of Israel. And if you're going to go on with God and you're going to go through with God, there will be many, many who will discourage you. Many Christians. Maybe people in your own home or your own family. But friends, it's always worth going on and going through with God the discouragements he faced. Then there were also the convictions that he held. Verse 29, he says, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? David has got convictions. There's a cause here. This man is defying the armies of Israel. But that's not the main thing. He's defying the God of Israel. He's speaking against our God. He's speaking against our Lord and is there not a cause? And David has got convictions. His conviction isn't as I need to look after myself. I need to save my own skin. I need to have a comfortable life. I need to enjoy myself. I need a life of ease. Those aren't David's convictions. 
David's convictions are God's glory is at stake. We need to seek first the kingdom of God. And that is David's conviction. And he held his convictions. He knew it was a battle to fight and a battle to win. And so it was with Christ. He held his convictions. He says, my meat, my purpose, my joy, my satisfaction is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and he wouldn't be held back. Are you going to hold your convictions in these days? Whenever so many are leaving, as the hymn writer said, many are leaving the highways trod by our fathers of old. Are you going to hold to the old paths? Jeremiah said that the old paths are the good way wherein you shall find rest for your souls. We dare not trust our hearts. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We need to hold our convictions if they're founded on the Word of God. The discouragements he faced. The convictions he held. Notice verse number 40. The stones that he gathered. Five smooth stones. Why five? Some people say, well, maybe David took five because he thought, well, I better be careful in case I miss with the first four. Others say, well, David was just being forewarned, forewarned and forearmed and was preparing as best as he could, humanly speaking. Well, you can read on in the Word of God in 2 Samuel 21, 22. We'll look at this sometime. Goliath had four sons. Maybe David was aware of them. And it may be that if I defeat Goliath, I'm going to need another four stones, one for each of those four sons. But at any rate, it's often agreed on that five in Scripture is the number of grace. And I believe David is showing us here that I can't win this battle by the flesh or by human endeavor. It's by grace. Only by grace can I enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not by human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. The Bible says, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. And it's the grace of God that is sufficient for us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, his grace is sufficient for us, his strength is made perfect in weakness. Then there's also the steadfastness that he showed in verse number 45. Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee not with his stones and his sticks and his sling, but he says, I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. David could not be moved. In spite of all external, internal, eternal, spiritual pressure, David is showing steadfastness, and our Lord Jesus Christ could not be moved from his great cause in coming into this world. Many Christians are easily moved. Many Christians are turning back. Peter spoke in 2 Peter chapter 3 about falling from your own steadfastness. Paul said, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of God. It was Martin Luther who said, here I stand, I can do no other. I might be the only one that's standing, he's saying, 
but this is where I stand. And if everybody goes back, I'm standing here because I've got a conscience. And it's captive to the Word of God. See it, Spurgeon said, Lord, take my heart, tie it, and tether it to the cross. Help me to be steadfast, not to turn back, not to throw down the weapons or throw away my convictions, but to be steadfast. And one last thought, the victory David enjoyed. The victory David enjoyed. You know what Saul questions David? David says in verse number 34, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. There came a lion from the, and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. I went out after them and smote them and delivered it out of his mouth. I caught him by his beard, smote him and slew him. Thy servant both slew the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them. David had won private secret battles before he could ever won public battles. And I believe it's as we win the victory in the secret place, that's whenever God gives you the victory in the public place. Whenever you can fight the battle in the place of prayer. Whenever you can resist temptation in the secret place. Whenever you can honor God, whenever nobody else is watching, God will honor you publicly. David went in the name of the Lord, in the name and in the strength of the Lord. And he took that sling and he put the first smooth stone in the sling. And in the name of God, he slew Goliath. Somebody said Goliath was a stone heavier by the time he hit the ground because David's little stone was in Goliath's forehead. David went to Goliath with five stones and he came back with five stones and one of them was stuck in the giant's forehead. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever he has come, he will bruise the head of the serpent. And friends, that's what he did upon the cross. The Bible says in Colossians, he destroyed principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. For this purpose, John says, was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verses 52 to 54, David's victory became Israel's victory. And friends, there are victories to be fought and won in the valley over the Goliaths that we face. But we do not fight and win in the flesh. We fight and win whenever we trust in Jesus Christ and step in behind him and step into the ground of the victory of the cross. You might face big Goliaths, but friends, we've got a bigger God. We have got a greater God. We have got a greater Christ. Get behind him. Stay behind him. Stay with him. Follow him, honor him, love him, obey him, and serve him. Whatever you're facing today, may God help you. If you're in the valley, may God give you the victory. If you're not yet a believer, and you know that you need to get saved, and you're afraid that if I become a Christian, I'll not be able to stand, I'll not be able to walk with God, I'll not be able to live the Christian life, there's a Savior that's able to save, able to keep, able to deliver. Trust him today. He shed his blood upon that cross, and he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even think. May God bless you. Thank you so much for your attention this morning.